2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Living on campus usually means living with college-age peers, but a unique program at Quinnipiac University gives students a chance to live at a retirement community. You heard that right. We'll learn more about the program and hear from a former student who spent her senior year living with elderly residents at Masonicare in Wallingford. That's coming up. First, we've heard on the show from parents of individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. Like many parents, they want their children to live as independently as possible, to be able to navigate life as adults, especially when their parents pass away. For some families, the only option at times would be a group home, but that doesn't have to be the only option. Favar runs eight group homes in the Farmington Valley, but it has a new housing project with a focus on integrating communities. That's what we're gonna be talking about today here on Where We Live. You can join us too. 860-275-7266, 860 7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio my first guest, Stephen Morris, who's executive director of FAVAR, which is a nonprofit uh, or the arc of the Farmington Valley. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Lucy. Great to be here.
2: I should note to our listeners, we actually met at one of our Coffee Break uh, series in uh, Canton, uh, where you told me about uh, these uh, two uh, new um, supportive housing projects that are slated to open in 2020. So let's talk about um, the plan and what exactly they're calling for.
3: Yeah, so we're really excited about these because we believe they're unique in the country, and they're unique because they include six key features. Um, And so those six key features are, one, uh, it's an inclusive setting, so people with and without disabilities living together. Two, um, there's a large peer group of people with what we call IDD, intellectual and developmental disabilities. So a large peer group is two. Three, is there affordable? Four, we have enhanced accessibility features designed into the buildings. Uh, Five, we're putting in smart technology. And six, we're having healthy prepared meal delivery as part of the program.
2: So it sounds like a lot of great amenities. How many apartments are we talking about that will be opening uh, first in Canton and then later in Bloomfield?
3: Yes, so in Canton, there'll be 40 total apartments, and as I mentioned, they're inclusive, so there are 10 of those 40 that are what we call set-aside apartments for people with IDD, and 30 other apartments that we're calling the standard apartments for anyone who qualifies for the low-income status of the building.
2: So where did this idea come from? You mentioned this is a, a very unique program, uh, first in the in Connecticut, uh, possibly um, one of the few uh, in the nation. So how did you hear about this idea?
3: Well, we didn't really hear about it. We, we kind of figured it out with lots of help from parents. So I've been working in the field for 30 years, and um, I've always heard from parents that their number one concern is what's going to happen to my child when I'm too old to take care of them any longer or I'm no no longer around. And so families want to start planning early. And I've been hearing this for decades. Um, So we finally had the opportunity, thanks to meeting a developer in the area, uh, to design our own building with all of these cool features that we've learned work over the years. And so that's one of the really cool things. We've been delivering apartment support for people for decades. But based on openings that we find you know an apartment here an apartment there we've never designed one from the ground up so that's what's really exciting about these two projects Mm -hmm. we built in everything we know that works and we've built in solutions for things that we're struggling with and that's what makes it so unique.
2: I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you know, families with members um, who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, you know, again, they they often wonder um, about um, how they will live when uh, the people that are supporting them are long gone. And so I'd mentioned that group homes is often uh, one of the options that families have in front of them. But when you mentioned you were talking with clients and their families about the things that they need, how is this different than a group home?
3: Yeah, so group homes are great, and this is not meant to replace group homes. I think group homes will always be around, and there will always be a need for them. But this is an option for people who may not need a group home. Now, group homes helped us deinstitutionalize in Connecticut, but group homes have never quite lived up to their promise of community inclusion. It probably has very little to do with the group homes themselves. The nature of our neighborhoods has changed, right? So when group homes started back in the 80s, You know, if you had loved ones or friends that lived far away, um, you had two options, you know, snail mail and expensive long-distance phone calls. And so that left a social gap that people filled with neighbors. Today, things are much different. There's more dual-income families, people are busier, and people keep up with the social interactions through social media. Uh, And it's not that people choose not to interact with their neighbors, it's just that they have other options. And so in a setting or an environment like this, how do you design an inclusive setting? That's why we started with an apartment building. That's why we built in apartments for people with IDD and apartments for people who don't have IDD. That's the inclusive setting that we've designed.
2: What about for families who um, may uh, be concerned about the safety of their loved one? I mean, how do you ensure that someone with IDD is the right fit for this inclusive community uh, supportive housing?
3: Yeah, great question. So you know certainly we've built in smart technology for safe monitoring. We're going to have staff on premises twenty four seven. We'll have a staff office on the premises. But we've also had some experience doing this. This isn't, our first rodeo so to speak. It's the first time we've put in all of these features but we have a couple other complexes where people live in what we call clustered settings where there's a larger peer group and what we found as we've designed space into the buildings for people to gather and plan activities as we've done that and as we've included people with and without disabilities in those activities and I'm talking about things like cooking classes and art classes and bringing in musicians, as people gather and interact and participate in these kind of activities together, relationships are born, friendships come out of that and people start looking out for each other. So far from being concerned, what we're actually creating in this type of, of an environment is people looking out for each other, people being mentors for each other. Uh, that's our experience.
2: Uh, Steve Morris is in studio with me, Executive Director of FAVAR. This is a nonprofit in the Farmington Valley um, that has existed for, I believe, more than 60 years uh, serving um, individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, There's a new uh, housing uh, uh, plan project initiative that they've been working on uh, that will be opening in Canton and Bloomfield next year. Uh, We're learning about that today, this idea of not just supportive housing, but the ability for uh, individuals with IDD to live uh, within the Community to be around people to not just be isolated uh, based on their disability. Um, I'd mentioned earlier, Steve, uh, group homes. Uh, there you might see, uh, you know, a certain st- staffing or a level of visits from uh, people that are delivering services to individuals with IDD. So who's going to be doing that for people um, within this uh, this uh, this apartment housing?
3: So it'll be the same staff that an organization, in this case, Favar, will be providing. We'll have staff on premises, as I mentioned, 24-7, like a group home. But because we'll have 20 people living at each of the buildings, there's some efficiencies that are built into that. So there's staffing efficiencies, there's transportation efficiencies, among all of the other benefits of the inclusive setting – Uh, And so that's where a lot of the cost savings can come from. At the same time, that allows people more self-sufficiency. They can be in their apartment, they don't have staff in their face all of the time, and that's what people tell us they want. We wanna make sure they are kept safe, and so we're using smart technology to monitor health and safety and wellness, but aside from that, we're giving people space, um, but we've got all that efficiency designed in.
2: You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860 275 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Um, if someone in your family um, has an intellectual, developmental, or developmental disability, um, is this housing uh, project something that, that sounds like a good fit um, for your loved one? You can join us, 860 uh, 275 Steve, you mentioned uh, cost savings. Uh, this is something that uh, the state of Connecticut has really had to drill down on uh, in recent years because of budget shortfalls, and uh, the cost of sometimes putting someone into a group home and providing care is a lot more than, say, a housing stipend. So tell us, how much is this going to cost, and and how will people be able to pay for it?
3: So people that will live in the set-aside apartments will be funded through the State Department of Developmental Services, or DDS. Now, in our experience at Favar, placing somebody in one of our group homes you know, of average need Uh, costs about $124,000 a year. This new setting, that same person, um, will cost about $47,000 a year. Greater independence, more inclusion, you know, we think it's better all around, and the cost savings is $77,000 a year per person um, for as long as they live there. Um, That's huge. That's certainly one of the reasons that the state of Connecticut is interested in this. We're interested in it for not only that reason, but for all of the other benefits that I've talked about.
2: Uh, you mentioned the state of Connecticut is interested in this plan. Um, so how much has the state invested um, in these two uh, apartment housing uh, units or projects that are going to be opening next year? Yeah,
3: so in collaboration with the Department of Developmental Services and the Department of Housing, each of the buildings has about $6 million of state investment funds into them. So they're not inexpensive expensive But again, the long-term cost savings and care support uh, is huge.
2: And then um, as far as uh, uh, filling the the gap in terms of funding, that's also coming um, from the federal government?
3: Yes. So in addition to the state funding, uh, an equal amount has been provided through uh, the federal low-income housing tax credit program.
2: Uh, This is where we live. Uh, My guest, Steve Morris, executive director of FAVAR. Uh, We're learning about uh, these really interesting supportive housing uh, that's going to be opening up where uh, individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities will be living with others. That could be millennials or seniors, Um, not just um, isolating them in the community. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. And I'm curious why Canton and why Bloomfield? And when we hear about any type of of housing that's coming up, whether it's supportive housing or uh, new units of any kind. Sometimes people in the community don't want uh, that particular housing. So I'm curious how the the residents of Canton and Bloomfield reacted uh, to these projects. Uh,
3: well, I should say that the residents of Bloomfield were very welcoming. Uh, I went to all of the town meetings in both towns. Um, Canton was also a welcoming community, um, but I would say that Bloomfield was even more so. Um, so we were pleasantly surprised that in both both areas that we were, we were welcomed. In fact, we were told in Canton that they would love to have everybody with IDD living in the apartment building. But, of course, we love the inclusiveness of the setting. Mm-hmm. And not only does it create housing for people with IDD, it creates more affordable housing for everybody. So as you mentioned, millennials, um, kids coming out of college – parents kicking them out of the house for the first time, or seniors downsizing, these are all gonna be great options for those kind of folks. Mm -hmm.
2: You mentioned earlier that um, two of the, the units will be about 40 units in one, 39 in the other. So about a quarter of the units uh, set aside for uh, individuals uh, with intellectual developmental disabilities. Um, how did you come up with that ratio? And why not uh, provide more of those units for uh, individuals with IDD?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. And we get that a lot. So part, part of the impetus is um, federal Medicaid uh, settings rules. So we're allowed to provide these kind of services and have M- Medicaid partially fund that um, because of something called a waiver that the state has with Medicaid, which waives the rules that would typically apply to hospital or nursing home settings. Um, and so the rules that the state of Connecticut have set up are that we won't have a uh, residential settings that include more than 25 or 30 percent of people with IDD, because otherwise it starts to look like an institution, and we want to avoid that for lots of good reasons.
2: Institutions like Southbury Training School, which is in the memory of many who are listening.
3: Yes, and Mansfield Training School and, and many others.
2: And why are those settings not a good fit for individuals with IDD?
3: So, you know, they were built with the best of intentions, and Southbury Training School was a, a model for the country at the time. Um, but over years, um, as it not only was segregated, it was also isolated. And so it was dependent, one, on annual legislative uh, allotments of funding. And when something is isolated and segregated, it's easy to, easier to ignore it, and it's it, That's what happened over time, and over many years, not because anyone wanted it, it's just that when budget difficulties came, that was a place to cut, and because it wasn't in the public view, which is another benefit of having something integrated in the community, when it's out of public view and not integrated, it's easy to ignore, easy to cut, and that's what happened, not just in Connecticut, but across the country. You know, Southbury Training School is much better funded now for the few people that remain there, Mm Uh, but it's because it's more in the public eye now. And that's where we see the benefit of these community-inclusive settings. They'll always be in the public eye. And that's just another benefit of inclusive, community-based settings.
2: I understand, Steve, you held an information session uh, last month uh, for people who are interested in moving in. Uh, So how much interest is there?
3: Boy, we had 110 RSVPs for that session. Now, not everybody showed up. It was a really hot night. Um, But we had a lot of people show up, and uh, it was quite surprising that there was that much interest. And so we'll probably hold some more sessions. Um, You know, it just depends on what the continued interest is. We only have a limited amount of openings for these two apartments. uh, So we don't want to create too much interest and have a lot of people disappointed because, again, we only have 39 total or 39 and 40 apartments, but only 25% of those will be available for people with IDD.
2: Steve Morris, again, Executive Director of FAVAR. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing our conversation with him here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with a young woman who hopes to live in one of these integrated communities. Now, do you have someone in your family with an intellectual developmental disability? What's your take on FAVAR's supportive housing developments? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. In recent years, some parents of adult children with intellectual and developmental disabilities have clashed with the state over Connecticut's reliance on group home settings. They say the state should develop more community-based services like integrated living that doesn't rely on encouraging people with disabilities to live in group homes, isolated from the rest of the community. The shift would save money too, a critical point for a state constantly dealing with budget shortfalls. Now in 2018, a multi-state agency collaboration decided to invest $13 million into a unique supportive housing project slated to open in Canton and Bloomfield next year. It's a project led by Favar, a Canton nonprofit for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In studio with me is Steve Morris, who's, who's the executive director of Favar. And joining us now are two individuals. Uh, First up, Fran Traceski, who um, is the father of a young woman with an intellectual disability uh, and also uh, president of Favar's board of directors. Fran, welcome to our show.
4: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
2: And uh, sitting next to you is your daughter, Lauren uh, Traceski, a Favar client. Lauren, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. So I'll start with you, uh, Fran. Um, again, you're a board member um, of Favar, but you also have a daughter who uh, receives services. So when you um, heard about uh, this initiative, or just in being part of the conversations, what really drew you to the idea?
4: So Lucy, this is the uh, the next step, I think, in the evolution of housing for folks with intellectual disabilities. Um, <clears throat> if you think back over some of the history that I think Steve went over, you know, there are many, many brave and dedicated parents before me who worked very hard to set up organizations like FAVAR and uh, like the Bristol Adult Resource Center where I work um, and, um, and to, to get folks into group homes and integrated into the school systems. Um, and for folks of, of my generation, breaking down the barriers to full inclusiveness is the next step in the evolution. And this housing project does exactly that. It takes young folks like my daughter, uh, and allows them to move into integrated settings where they can be part of the community, where they can be independent to the extent possible, and you know where they can they can be a just a, a vibrant part of of a group of people who are some with intellectual disabilities, some without, uh, and have a wide range of friends and, and people to look out for them.
2: Uh, we heard uh, Steve uh, mention that uh, one of the units will have forty. Un- one of the apartment uh, buildings will have forty units. The other thirty-nine, uh, a quarter of them designated for individuals with IDD. Uh, Lauren, you're actually hoping to secure one of the non-designated units. So, um, tell us about um, your journey in terms of when you realized <laughs> that you were ready to live on your own.
5: Um, when I was when I first heard about it, I was like man i don't know if i really want to and and now that i'm in a relationship i i know what's gonna be like after that you know and i know i know right now i'm nervous i'm scared i'm i'm like everything i'm i'm everything i'm feeling a lot of emotions are flying around of me, you know, and I I hope that one day um, people will look at me or my boyfriend and say, hey, they're living on their own. I want to do it. You know, why can't I do it? You know, and that's pretty much how I want people to look at themselves, they could do it, you know.
2: A friend, what kind of conversations did you and your wife have with Lauren about this next step?
4: You know, we've we've been talking about a step like this with Lauren for several years now, as as she's matured and 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 is really ready to take this kind of a step. Um, but uh, it, it was the these apartments becoming available that that really drove the conversation around. You know, what do you think? Could you get out and live on your own? Would you be? You know, I mean, and. Lauren, Lauren, Lauren describes herself as being very nervous, and I'm certain that she is. But she's well more than ready to kind of take the step and get out and 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 really try to spread her own wings. So it's been those kinds of conversations about, you know, how it would work, how how this would come together for you, what it would be like to be independent. Um, in those kinds of kinds of conversations, I think.
2: Uh, Steve, uh, you would mentioned a lot of smart technology would be a part of these units. Is that for the entire apartment building or just for the IDD-designated units?
3: So we're building it in just for the set-aside apartments. But as most people know, with smart technology, you can add it to just about any place. And uh, all the new stuff that's coming out uh, Something new is you know, coming out every week. It's, there's some cool stuff. And so we're, we're building in a base system that will go into all of the set aside apartments, and then we're gonna be able to customize on top of that for people's particular needs.
2: Um, Fran, how do you address, um, maybe um, some individuals would have privacy concerns, especially with uh, all of the advent of this new technology?
4: So I, I think the beauty of, of what we're setting up here is that it's completely tailorable to an individual's needs. So if you think about you know, the old institutional setting where it was kind of a one-size-fits-all and, and, and even in, in a group home where we don't have these kinds of technologies, folks tend to get the same sort of here's, here's who we have, here's the sorts of supports they're going to get. In this case, we can tailor it precisely to you know, if you need very, very intense interaction, you can have very intense interaction. If you just need someone who can check to make sure your door is locked at night electronically, great, then that's all you'll get. Um, so you can really work the privacy issues at the level of, of an individual's needs.
2: You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Uh, Shelley's calling from New Haven. Shelly, you're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. Um, I was calling because I was amazed at... Um, What you guys are offering, I have a daughter that has uh, cognitive and processing disorder, but she has a baby, and I wasn't sure if there was any, you know, um, programs out there that would help facilitate her as far as independent living. Shelley, thank you for your question. Steve Steve Morris. So the apartments that
3: we're setting up in Canton and in Bloomfield um, are designed for folks who are currently clients of the Department of Developmental Services. And so that if you're interested, um, regardless of your family situation, Lauren talked about you know, getting married in the future. Um, so whether you, know, you have a family or want to have one in the future, these apartments could be right for you. But I would recommend that you work through your DDS case manager um, to pursue your interest and whether or not this might be a right match for you.
2: Join our conversation on Where We Live, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Bree is calling from Bloomfield. Bree, go ahead.
0: Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment on how great the inclusiveness of this is. Like, I have uh, a soon-to-be 19-year-old daughter, and her and her best friend who's 21 are looking to get their first apartment out on their own next year. And for kids their age, it's hard to get out and, and you know, find a place that they can afford, that's in a nice area, that's safe. And they've always been so good as millennials with, you know, they believe in equal rights for everybody. They're wonderful with individuals with IDD. So uh, that was, I thought of them immediately when I heard this um, about this building. Uh, I, I think they would just do wonderful and flourish in this kind
2: of environment. Well, thank you, Bree, uh, for your call here on where we live. I wanted to go back uh, to Lauren. Uh, you said that you're um, there's a lot of different emotions that you're going through, but mm-hmm. you want to prove that you can live on your own. And you said you're in a relationship. Uh, your boyfriend as well yeah. uh, wants to prove that he can live on his own. Any concerns that you have about um, you know possibly moving out? And I'm curious what you could tell us about some of
5: them. Um. Well, I'm I'm worried about uh, the budget for me and him because I'm just, like, like even though I make minimum wage and he makes minimum wage, too, um, I think we're both at a point where it's like, okay, he needs a steady job. I have a steady job, and um, I think it's better for the two of us or for anybody in that matter to have a job that, that they love. And they wake up every morning and say, oh yeah, I have a job to go to. That is so great. You know, I, I really want them to understand where, where where their job is and what they do at their job every day. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, when we think about the location of these apartment uh, buildings, uh, Steve, you know, access to public transit if need be, and um, to make sure that they're near areas where they might be working?
3: So that's one of the beauties of the Bloomfield location, which is on Cottage Grove Road. Right at the base of the driveway to the apartment building, Uh, there's a bus stop, and there's lots of routes that go through there. So folks who want to access the public transportation system, the Bloomfield setting would be ideal for for that. Um, Canton also has a bus stop, not too far within walking distance. Um, Not as much access as Bloomfield, but still some. Um, So depending on whether somebody drives or has other ways to – you know, get around, um, they might choose one or the other location.
2: Uh, Fran Troseski is also in studio with us. Uh, he's the father of Lauren, also a board member of FAVAR. I had asked uh, Lauren about some of the concerns she may have, but as a parent, you know, what are some of your concerns?
4: So so Lauren hit on on one of the key concerns, and, and that is jobs and, you know, making sure that she has... She and, and folks like folks with IDD have access to good jobs. Um, I think harkening uh, back to something Steve said earlier, you know the thing that, that that gives all of us who are parents of folks with IDD night terrors is what will happen when I'm gone and I I can't be there to to help out. Um, so you know a project like this. Um, allows – will hopefully allow the state to have a, a, a much more rational plan for how they are able to move people into housing and I, I should probably drop back and say that today the plan is basically when you become incapacitated, we'll find a spot for your child. Um, and you can imagine the, the the terrifying situation that is for people. Uh, so we're hopeful that this project will, will spur much, many more projects like it and and allow the state to come up with sort of a more rational plan for how we move people into these kinds of facilities and, and get them independent and, you know, because it's affordable and, and we, can, we can have many more apartments available, um, that we can move down a path where there's just much more availability and, and a, a much better plan. Mm-hmm.
2: You mentioned uh, the the approach that the state has taken um, now where um, when they're able to go to a group home, if there is an opening. So in the past, have there been even wait lists for individuals who might need that support um, when uh, parents do uh, become incapacitated and can't care for their child anymore?
4: So that's an interesting question. There are those who will tell you, yes, there are, and those who will tell you there's no such thing. And since I've never been able to actually see one, my assumption is there really is not a wait list um, that it really is uh when when the need arises something happens mm-hmm.
2: so for a, a, a apartment uh building like the ones that'll be opening in Canton and Bloomfield, if they weren't coming down the line, what would be some of the plans that that you and your wife and Lauren have talked about for her uh moving forward
4: so yes yeah, so the next question would then be you know what affordable housing is out there um Lauren, as she said earlier, makes minimum wage um, and, and uh, so, so there's, there's a, a, a limited capacity to move into a standard apartment for the long run. Um, so we, you know, we would have thought about and would look at other types of affordable housing which are, as we know, very challenging in Connecticut and most of the country I think right now. Um, there's, there's not a lot of options out there honestly.
2: You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. My in-studio guest, Steve Morris, Executive Director of FAVARS, the nonprofit uh, in Canton, um, working for uh, many decades now uh, to help families and individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Fran Trzeski, who you just heard from, is on the board, and he's the father of a young woman with an intellectual disability. Uh, Lauren, who's also with us here today, she's hoping to move into one of these non designated uh, units for um, in Canton and Bloomfield, again, opening uh, next year. Um, I just wanted to uh, follow up with you, uh, Fran, as we were talking about, you know, plans and conversations that um, your family has. Um, we've talked, we've mentioned a few times, whether um, you have a child with IDD or not, you, want, you, you worry about and hope that along when you're gone, that they'll be able to live a full life and be able to live independently. Uh, and I'm curious about the conversation, that you've had in your family about that time and, and who will be there to support Lauren?
4: Those are always very challenging conversations. Yeah. Um, Lauren, Lauren, Lauren has a brother, who but he lives in Denver at the moment. Um, so, you know, we we have conversations kind of within the family about what would happen, how would it happen. Fortunately, both Lauren's mom and I are, Quite healthy at the moment, <laughs> um, <laughs> so so there haven't there haven't been any pressing issues, yeah. but uh, it, you know it, it it is the challenge, and to to a large degree I think for many of us in the IDD community, what we really need are organizations like Favar, where you can you can you know have the kinds of apartments we're working on, for instance, and we can once we're gone know that that. Favar will provide some of the services for our, for our, uh, our loved ones and, uh, and that you know, other family members can look in and, and perhaps help them with, with finances and things like that, but that, that they have a relationship with an organization like Favar that can step in and, and really help.
2: Uh, Steve Morris, you're executive director of Favar. So tell us how Favar works with families to have those logistics in place, so to speak, so that they can have peace of mind.
3: Well, I think the apartments are a good example of the way that it really should be done. So the apartments create an opportunity for folks of Lauren's age, young adults, to move into their own home and learn how to be independent. If you take the scenario that Fran presented when parents are are older and are incapacitated, their adult children are much older at that point, and moving them into an independent living situation at that point usually doesn't work out. Moving someone out when they're a young adult, um, when learning, and and they're at their peak, um, that's when we're all at our best, and that's when we can learn to kind of step it up. And we found that when we raise the bar for people, people do step up. And Lauren's proved that, and her friends have proved that, and and jobs. She's recently moved to a much more independent job where she's making more money. Uh, We know that she's going to step it up when she moves into her first apartment. And one of the reasons she can do that is because she's still young and vibrant. And that's the time to make this happen. So that's what these apartments are designed for. Young people like Lauren and her friends um, who can really make the most of it and learn to be more independent and less dependent on state tax dollars.
2: Well, Lauren, how do you respond when you hear Steve talk about you and your friends as, as being at a, a perfect time to make that move?
5: Oh, um, well, I feel good. And I'm sure some of my friends around me feel good. I mean, I don't know very many people who are moving out of their parents' house, but whenever I hear that word independent living, I'm like, Oh, I could do that. I mean, it's not that hard <laughs> to really get out there and do things by them by ourselves. You know, and I worried that that transportation is not that great in my town. And um, so I'm like, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna get to the shops of uh, the Farrington Valley? Or how am I gonna get to the movie theaters or go to a restaurant, you know? That's the one thing I, I worry about the most is, how am I gonna do it, you know? Or who's gonna provide that, you know?
2: Um, before we uh, head into break, uh, Steve, I'm curious uh, when we think about the the units and them being affordable, especially in a state like Connecticut. Can you break down the costs for someone who will be moving into an IDD um, versus somebody who um, you're hoping that would be interested in, in living in this apartment building? What is the standard rent?
1: Yeah,
3: so so the standard rents uh, for both Bloomfield and Canton are about thousand dollars a month for the one bedrooms and about. 12 or 1300 for the two bedrooms. And that's a bit of a moving figure because it's based on you know, federal low income housing tax credits and a basis which changes every year. Um, for the set aside apartments, however, um, the Department of Social Services in Connecticut has created rental assistance packages or RAPs. And so the individuals living in those set aside apartments will never pay more than one third of their adjusted total income for rent and utilities. And that's a sweet deal for them. Um, And that's guaranteed for at least 15 years and probably a lot longer. Um, So it's really going to be – these set-aside apartments are really going to be a great thing for the people that move into them.
2: Uh, Have you heard from other states about these integrated communities?
3: We're hearing from other states who are interested in hearing what we're doing. So I've been to Tennessee where I've talked about this. Um, We're invited and we will be headed down to Charleston, South Carolina next week to talk at a national uh, conference for executive directors of the ARC uh, who want to hear about this. And as Fran mentioned earlier, we're not just doing this for the folks that we know in Connecticut. We hope that this can be replicated not only throughout Connecticut but across the country. Um, This isn't the final step, but it's certainly the next evolutionary step in what we think is community living, uh, and we want to share it.
2: Mm Uh, We've heard from some callers, some listeners who called in who are, obviously, their interest has peaked. Uh, When will you um, know uh, when uh, these apartments can be, um, I guess, divvied up, so to speak, from the applications? And when will they be opening specifically?
3: So construction is a funny thing, and I'm learning (laughs) a lot about it. Um, So as of today, the Canton project is um, projected to be completed in March of 2020, and the Bloomfield uh, project is a couple months behind that. But as we, any of us know who have dealt with construction, that's a moving target. Um, so about 121 day, 120 days prior to the anticipated move-in date, as that gets closer, the applications for the standard apartments will be available to make, and there will be a, a set date that you can make those. We're still a little too far away to say when that will be. Um, for the set-aside apartments, we're currently collecting applications. Um, we're getting referrals through the Department of Developmental Services, Um, There's lots of room left, and so I would encourage anyone who is uh, a member of DDS to talk to your case manager, um, make a referral for these apartments if it's something that interests you. Um, If you want to find out more, please contact us at FAVAR, and we'll be happy to tell you more about it.
2: And DDS is the Department of Developmental Services uh, within the state of Connecticut. I want to thank uh, Steve Morris again, Executive Director of FAVAR, for coming in. Also, uh, Fran Trzeski and Lauren Trzeski talking about these integrated community apartment uh, housing uh, that will be opening up next year in Canton and Bloomfield. Thank you all for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm After the break, dorm living has its pluses and minuses. But when you were in college, would you have chosen to live in a retirement community? We'll hear about a unique program at Quinnipiac University that confronts ageism. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Living on campus usually means living with college-age peers, but a unique program at Quinnipiac University gives students a chance to live at a retirement community. Joining me now in studio to talk about Quinnipiac's Students in Residence program at Masonicare uh, is Laura Mutry, who's Clinical Assistant Professor in Social Work at Quinnipiac. Laura, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Lucy.
2: I'll just have you sit a little bit closer to that (laughs) microphone so our listeners can hear you well. And Victoria Kozar is also with us. She was one of the first students to participate in this unique program. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with you, Laura. It's an interesting idea. I'm just curious uh, where the idea came from. Okay,
0: so um, the idea came from two very visionary women, one from Quinnipiac and one from Masonicare, Care, um, Erica De Francesco from Quinnipiac and Kelly Papa from Masonicare who had this uh, a exposure to a kind of similar idea of students living intergenerationally um, that they learned about. And then Decided they wanted to bring to fruition in our neighborhood. So, um, so is this
2: something that has been is being seen in other campuses uh, in the country?
0: So, in some different forms, <laughs> I believe in Cleveland there was uh, there is where they sort of heard about the. The project in Cleveland where students from um, a uh, art school, music school, were living in a nursing home and um, this is assisted living. So that's the unique part of this.
2: And so the idea is uh, students would apply and then one or two of them are then assigned or uh, given a, a, a living space at Masonic here in Wallingford? Yes. So Masonicare um, provides the space
0: and and meals and the opportunity to bring a gift, to bring service and to live intergenerationally with Mm -hmm. their um, residents and to create relationships that otherwise, I think, (laughs) might not happen. Um, And I think that's the... That's the lovely part of it is the relationships that are formed. Mm-hmm. Students do provide service through the gift that they bring, whether it's a musical instrument or uh, art or whatever they feel that they can contribute to the community there. But I think the – that. Tia will agree that it it is these relationships that are so important and living naturally intergenerationally.
2: So, Victoria, you applied for uh, this uh, program. I'm curious that you were a senior uh, at the time. So what about this interested you? Why, Why live on a retirement community?
1: Well, I've always been told that I'm a little bit of an old soul, and actually that year I was teaching water aerobics to a group of older women, and I found that I had so much more in common with them. I had done the dorm life, and an opportunity like this I thought was so enriching to my education, specifically with my interests in pursuing medicine. I thought, what a great way to get to know the people that I want to serve.
2: So uh, when you uh, were accepted into the program, you got living space at Masonic Care in Wallingford. Again, this is an assisted living community. Um, So what was that like? What was your room like? How often did
1: you engage with the residents there? So I will say it's probably nicer than any dorm that I've ever seen. (laughs) Uh, I had neighbors on either side that were of assisted living um, residents, You know, they'd always check in on me, making sure I ate my meals, uh, made sure I wasn't staying out too late. Um, But I spent more time there than I think I anticipated. Uh, Every morning I had breakfast with the same group of ladies who were kind of in my neighborhood, um, (laughs) my wing of the area, uh, to even all of my dinners, too. Kind of debriefing, they'd ask how my day was. I asked what they did. Uh, And then we did uh, different group activities. So I ran a baking group, which ended up kind of being a ladies' club, uh, jewelry (laughs) making, and a few other other groups, as well as bringing my friends from college in. We did bingo more Saturdays, and I think we went out.
2: <laughs> so what's the reaction from your peers at the time? You mentioned you brought in some of your college-age friends. So what was their impression?
1: I think they were more excited than I was sometimes. When they heard what was going on or, and the experiences that I had, they wanted kind of their own taste of care, uh, which is part of the reason why I founded the organization at Quinnipiac, Old Friends New that could bring college students into Masonic Care, even for a brief period of time, partnering them with uh, residents there so they could get those relationships as well. So, uh... Uh, Laura, obviously the the students are learning
2: from uh, these residents at Masonic Care. But what are the what are some of the benefits that we know uh, where we're talking about um, elderly residents? What it's like? Why there's an importance to have intergenerational living instead of being isolated uh, into specific age groups?
0: Well, I think you're hitting on one of the benefits is that social isolation can be a problem, um, loneliness. Um, but I also think that. This intergenerational living has shown that it not only affects those sort of emotional things, it also affects physical health in a positive way and I'm sure Tia is really interested in that. Anything from diabetes – Blood pressure, even su- certain forms of cancer, can be improved by having less isolation, less loneliness, and this intergenerational, really natural way of living with others that are so you're not isolated mm-hmm. in sort of a segregated way by age.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Victoria, you mentioned that you had an interest in the medical uh, profession uh, when you uh, were picked to be part of this uh, Students in Residence program. Um, How did your experience shape uh, the path that you've taken now that you've graduated?
1: So, this experience has transcended when I moved out. I think every aspect of my life has really taken a turn um, because of this experience. I always wanted medicine, but seeing the needs, And really getting to know the residents at Masonicare has made me interested in geriatrics, as well as seeing the cognitive decline that I saw during the time there. I currently uh, work as a dementia program coordinator at Wilton Meadows because I want to serve those residents like the friends that I made at Masonicare.
2: Mm. You mentioned the cognitive decline. So you were seeing uh, residents, uh, some of them um, um, starting symptoms of dementia?
1: Yeah. And also um, within the assisted living community, there's also a memory care area, which mm. I did like to spend some time in. And I saw some of my neighbors have to move, unfortunately, to to that mm. to meet their needs. Um, and I realized I didn't really have the tools to cope with that. And I didn't have the resources to really know what to do. And I kind of threw myself into the field. I I work with the Alzheimer's Association now as well advocating uh, because I want to make sure that these residents, um, people who don't always have a voice or an advocate, you know, they can Mm -hmm. be taken care of as well. Have you kept in touch with some of those uh, girlfriends that you you met? Uh, Beth is still one of my best friends. Uh, I visit her almost every week. Mm -hmm. Um, She's been so, she's played such a huge role in my life. Uh, She was at my graduation um, throughout all of the milestones in my life. She was one of the first people to meet my current boyfriend. She is she is my best friend. Despite our age, we have so much in common, and she's such a wonderful woman. Again, uh,
2: Victoria Kozar was one of the first students to participate in this Quinnipiac University Masonic Care Students in Residence program. Laura, just a couple minutes left. Um, how many students have been selected to participate in this year? So there are two students who will be participating,
0: and one of them has been uh, kind of the – has followed in Victoria's footsteps and is uh, the coordinator of the Old Friends and New Program, so she's been very, very active in working with, on, against ageism and that's another piece of this whole thing. As you mentioned earlier, that part of this relationship that Quinnipiac and Masonicare have, is to both create a workforce for the ever-increasing aging population as well as to fight the idea of
2: ageism in our
0: society.
2: Mm -hmm. And so the uh, fourth year of the Students in Residence program, so you've had uh, quite a variety of students uh, in what uh, disciplines they're interested in in going into after college? Yes. So
0: it's not just for specific disciplines. So I believe there's been an MBA student, a master's in business administration student, Student. Um, there have been occupational therapy students. Tia was a health sciences major. Um, a law student was there last year. So really across the boards, it's not just for people who are interested in healthcare with the aging population. It's more about, like I said, the relationships.
2: Yeah. Well, Laura Mutry, who's Clinical Assistant Professor in Social Work at Quinnipiac University, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, we should note that Masonic Care is one of the underwriters here at Connecticut Public Radio. I also want to thank Victoria Kozar, uh, one of the first students to participate in this unique uh, program, uh, who joined us, uh, a Quinnipiac graduate. Uh, Victoria, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, today's show, produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, thanks to uh, Katie Tularski, uh, who was on our board today. And I'm Lucy Nalpithangela.